Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. It was the mid-afternoon of Wednesday, June 6, 1962, in the Jamaica Estates North area of Queens. The street was cordoned off outside one of the large ranch-style houses on Union Turnpike. The road had been torn up by heavy machinery, and construction workers were standing idly by. It would have been reasonable to assume that there were maintenance works underway, if not for the heavy police presence. Crime scene investigators were reaching down into the sewer line that was flowing from the house and pulling out pieces of human flesh. The homeowner was nowhere to be found, but police suspected that the victim was a teenage girl who had been brought to the residence for an illegal abortion. Hello listeners, I'm your host Nina Instead and welcome to episode 79 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Lofermento was a 19-year-old sophomore student at the College of New Rochelle. Her parents, Rose and Dominic, were well off, primarily due to Dominic's career as a pharmacist. The family lived on Elm Tree Lane, Pelham, on the Bronx side of the Westchester Line. The Lofermentos had three children, Rosemary Ann, who had just graduated from the College of New Rochelle a year earlier, 11-year-old Richard, and Barbara, who had graduated from Pelham Memorial High School with an average of 3.26 out of 4 and almost straight A's. Barbara had been the co-editor of the yearbook and a member of both the Honor Society and the Night and Lamp Society. She was described as charming, personable, and intelligent. The Lofermentos were proud of their daughter for pursuing her education but when she came to them in a crisis on Thursday, May 31, 1962, they worried that she was about to throw her life away. Barbara was pregnant, and the baby was due in September. Stunned by the revelation, Barbara's parents went with her to her boyfriend's house to assess the situation with his parents. Barbara's boyfriend said that he wanted to marry her and raise the child. 
but the low fermentos didn't think that was in their daughter's best interest. They thought it would be best if they took care of things, so they sought a recommendation from friends who knew a doctor who could help with their little problem. Abortion was illegal at the time, so most women who were in trouble or having a crisis pregnancy had to arrange to have what was called a back-alley abortion or risk their own life trying to terminate the pregnancy themselves. A local physician by the name of Dr. Harvey Lothringer was suggested, and after calling to schedule an appointment, the Lofermentos arranged a covert meeting at Grand Central Terminal under cover of darkness. It was 2 a.m. on Sunday, June 3rd, when Dominic dropped his wife and daughter off, and they were met by the doctor and his assistant. Rose handed over $500 in cash before they were driven back to the doctor's office and home on Union Turnpike in Queens. As Barbara was prepped for the procedure, her mother, Rose, waited patiently outside the treatment room. A few hours passed before Dr. Lothringer came out of the room. By this point, Rose was anxious to see her daughter. However, the doctor told her Barbara needed to rest for a few more hours and that everything would be all right. He may need to bring her to the local hospital for oxygen. He told Rose to come back that afternoon to pick her up at Terrace Heights Hospital. Rose met her husband at Grand Central around 8 a.m., but he was uncomfortable leaving without Barbara, so they drove back to Queens. They knocked and knocked at the door of the house. However, they were only met by the sound of dogs barking. Dominic tried to peer through the large windows, but the blinds were drawn and the lights were out. Dominic and Rose drove to the hospital where they had been told to collect Barbara, but there was no sign of her anywhere. They spent the entire day outside Dr. Lothringer's house and made repeated trips to a nearby payphone to try and get in contact with him. Overcome with panic, they called their attorney. The attorney advised them to speak with the district attorney because although they knew they could get into trouble for procuring an abortion, their main concern was Barbara's safety. They met with the district attorney the following day and initially told him that Barbara had left the house after an argument when they found out that she was pregnant. The Lofermento said they had searched her room and found a piece of paper with Dr. Lothringer's name on it. The district attorney's office was well aware of Dr. Lothringer and rumors that he was the go-to doctor for young women with unwanted pregnancies. However, without definitive evidence that Barbara had been in his house, it would take time to get a warrant. The district attorney's investigators went to Dr. Lothringer's home anyway to look for Barbara. They knocked at the door, but they too got no response. As they waited for a search warrant, Dr. Lothringer had spoken with a friend of his. Patrol officer George Harchak had been a friend of the doctor's for years, and he was happy to help when the doctor called and asked him to oversee some maintenance work on his house while he was away on business. Dr. Lothringer said to call Roto-Rooter's sewer service and ask them to flush out the system. On Tuesday, June 5th, the officer got a key from Lothringer's parents, who happened to live close by, and he let the sewer cleaner into the house. 
After finding a toilet overflowing with pink-tinted water, the maintenance worker made his way down to the basement and opened the sewer trap. It was immediately apparent that the drain was clogged, and as the worker began to pull out parts of the mass that was blocking the pipe, he recoiled in horror. Discolored chunks of flesh and bone mixed with water were set aside as Officer Harchak called for detectives to come to the scene. In order to clear the blockage, a hose had to be fed into the basement to pump water through the drain to push the contents out into the sewer line beneath the street outside the house. Investigators ordered a section of the ground outside the house to be dug up to give them access to the pipes. From here, they collected all of the human remains that flowed out from the house. Assistant Medical Examiner Dr. John Fury was assigned the grisly task of trying to identify the remains. It was evident by the small size of the body parts that some of them had been cut up into small pieces before being passed through the disposal unit in the kitchen. The other pieces, the largest being just a few inches, had been flushed down the toilet. The only identifiable body parts were bone fragments and a piece of jawbone. Most tellingly, there were fetal remains found too, and the size of the unborn baby's foot indicated they were around five months' gestation. Assistant Medical Examiner Richard E. Grimes later said that never before in his career had he seen human remains dissected into such small pieces, and even some of the teeth had to be reconstructed from seven fragments. For some of the parts identified, the medical examiner determined that the victim was a young woman. After obtaining dental records from Barbara's dentist, the remains were positively identified as being the missing teenager. Her father also identified fragments of clothing that were found in the drain. The medical examiner believed it would have taken more than a day to dismember the body to such a degree and that an electric saw must have been used. Once Barbara's parents were told their daughter had been found, they told the truth about bringing her to Dr. Lothringer for an abortion. Dr. Harvey Lothringer was a popular and well-liked physician who operated a clinic out of his home in Queens. He had graduated from Princeton in 1941 and went on to qualify as a doctor at NYU before serving as a captain in the Army Medical Corps during the Second World War. Lothringer had been described as a great doctor, but a terrible husband by his second wife, Felice, when she filed for sole custody of their two children during a bitter separation in 1958. She had likened him to a Dr. Jekyll in his professional life and a Mr. Hyde at home. The doctor charged $10 for house calls during regular clinic hours and $25 per visit on the evenings and weekends, but his side business was lucrative as he could charge $500 or more to perform an abortion for desperate women. To avoid alimony payments, Lothringer squirreled away most of his money in a safe in his bedroom closet. Although no withdrawals had been made from his bank accounts when Barbara's remains were found, the police were confident that he had more than enough cash to flee the state. Also missing from the house was Lothringer's receptionist a 24-year-old Cuban national named Teresa Carrillo. 
A Valentine's card written by the doctor found in his home suggested they had more than a working relationship. In the card signed by Lothringer, he wrote, To Teresa, you're the only real love of my life. Lothringer had phoned his police officer friend on Monday, June 4th, and it was speculated he had remained in the area to see if the drains could be cleared and remove any trace of Barbara. It emerged that he had his drains cleared just six months prior, so he had no reason to request them to be cleared again unless he knew there was a chance something would block them. When her remains were discovered, he must have fled, but only after he dropped his German Shepherd dogs off at his parents' house without speaking to them. Lothringer left a message on his answering service to tell patients he had gone away on a brief vacation and they should find another doctor. The doctor was already under investigation by the district attorney's office when he vanished. D.A. Frank O'Connor said, My men moved in to pick Lothringer up on Monday in connection with two other abortions. We were just a day too late. His home had been under surveillance for three weeks. He was part of a full-blown abortion ring with steerers and referrers operating citywide and throughout the state. Because of the present confusion over the legality of wiretaps, we did not wiretap the house. If we had used wiretaps, this poor girl would have been alive today. A 13-state alarm was issued to try and locate the doctor and Teresa. Before coming to work for Lothringer, Teresa had been a stewardess for National Airlines, so investigators considered if the couple could have fled to Miami and then on to Cuba. This would have proved difficult if the couple had fled to Cuba, as the U.S. had no diplomatic relationship with them at the time. Teresa's mother and sister still lived in Havana, so flight records were checked and alerts were also sent to Mexico, where Lothringer's sister lived. 41-year-old Lothringer was described as being 5 feet 8 inches tall, weighing around 150 pounds, with receding gray hair and half-frame glasses. Teresa was said to be a petite brunette. Lothringer owned a hunting lodge in Canada, so the Canadian Royal Mounted Police were asked to search the lodge but found no trace of him. Fearing that Lothringer was at large, the FBI were brought in to assist on June 7th, and a federal warrant was issued accusing Lothringer of unlawful flight to avoid arrest and two abortion charges unrelated to Barbara. Lead investigator, Deputy Inspector James Knott, the commander of the Queen's Detective Unit, explained that there were 50 men working on what he believed was an open and shut case. Chief Inspector Knott said, We have all the facts of the crime. All we are concerned with now is finding our man. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. For three months, Lothringer and Teresa managed to evade capture. 
they had made their way to Detroit before flying to Montreal. From there, they flew to France before making their way to Andorra, a small country on the French-Spanish border. There, they lived in a rented house under the names Mr. and Mrs. Victor Ray. They spent their days living like tourists, and they bowled in the evenings, but they stood out in the tiny nation with around 6,000 inhabitants. After intercepting a postcard Lothringer had sent from Andorra, an alert was sent out through the European Policing Agency Interpol. It didn't take long for police in the south of France to locate the wanted couple, but there was no extradition treaty in place with Andorra. Luckily for the investigators, Lothringer's lease in the Andorran villa ran out, and the couple were on the market for a new hideout. When they traveled back across the French border to view a house, local police officers arrested Lothringer on September 10, 1962, and brought him to Perpignan for arraignment. A French official was quoted in the Daily News as saying, They stood out in spite of the many tourists there. If criminals want to hide out in Europe, they need to pick a bigger place. Besides, we were hot on their trail. There was no resistance to the arrest. During the hearing to establish that he was, in fact, the man wanted by the FBI, Lothringer confirmed his identity but declared, I am not guilty of what I am accused of. Lothringer was remanded into custody, and while he was behind bars, Teresa spoke with the Daily News. She described how she had, in fact, married Lothringer in 1961, but she was using her old passport because it took too long to get new identification. Teresa said, My husband is innocent of Barbara LaFermento's abortion death. The truth is we only saw the girl once. Her parents brought her up to my husband, asking for an abortion. But since the girl was five months pregnant, my husband refused to operate and told them, Do you want me to end up in the electric chair? He advised the parents to let Barbara have the child in another U.S. city and have the child adopted there. She claimed that the Lofermentos knew that, like all American doctors, her husband had helped other girls in the past. They had threatened to tell the police unless he agreed to perform the abortion, but Teresa insisted that he had refused. She said that when Barbara went missing, Lothringer had panicked, and out of fear of her parents' vengeance, he decided to flee the U.S. Teresa explained they had come to Andorra at the end of June and were about to leave when Lothringer was arrested. She hoped to visit him in jail where he had spent the past three days. The following day, it was reported that Dr. Lothringer had confessed to Queen's assistant district attorney Philip Chetta, who had flown to France to speak with him in the jail. According to the report given by Chetta, Lothringer claimed that Teresa had no knowledge of the procedure and that Barbara had died from an embolism just 30 minutes into the abortion. He said he had been reluctant to agree to the procedure because Barbara was five months pregnant, but her father had begged him to. When questioned about dismembering Barbara's remains with an electric saw, Lothringer turned pale and said it made him physically ill to talk about it. He claimed that he had tried to hide Barbara's death to protect Teresa and confirmed they were not married as she had claimed. A few days later, Lothringer's attorney, Moses Falk, insisted that his client had made a false confession after being told he could only see Teresa if he confessed. 
Lothringer did not agree to voluntarily return to the U.S., so on September 26th, a Queen's grand jury returned an indictment charging him with manslaughter and three counts of illegal abortion. After three months in the French jail, Lothringer was brought back to New York in December 1962. Despite pleas from his counsel for a reduction in bail, his bond was set at $100,000. In response to the application for the reduced bail, ADA Frank Cacciatore said, This defendant ran away and did not notify anyone. He could run away again. This charge of manslaughter resulted from an abortion. Ordinarily, a person who takes another's life is charged with murder. Counsel should thank God for little favors. Teresa was not arrested, but she was held on $30,000 bail as a material witness. Three months later, in March 1963, Teresa was brought before a grand jury. But when she refused to answer questions, she was charged with contempt. That same month, Lothringer pleaded not guilty to manslaughter and abortion charges. He was later released on $50,000 bail and began working as manager of a paper plant in Indianapolis. By March 1964, the case had still not gone to trial. And at a hearing, Barbara's father made his frustrations known when he shouted at Lothringer, Why don't you go home and blow your brains out, you murderer? The trial finally began before Queen's Supreme Court Justice Peter Farrell on May 18, 1964, after 11 postponements. Lothringer was to be tried on two counts of manslaughter, two counts of abortion, and single counts of second-degree assault, dissecting a human body, conspiracy to commit abortion, failing to report a death, and disturbing a corpse. Fourteen additional counts of abortion were severed from the case before the trial began. On the second day of the trial, Lothringer shocked everyone when his attorney announced he would be pleading guilty to second-degree manslaughter. He claimed that Barbara was suffering from a fatal infection when she arrived, and when he tried to treat it, he dislodged an embolism which killed her instantly. The plea was accepted, which brought the trial to a close and Barbara's parents were grateful that Lothringer potentially faced 15 years in prison. Dominic Lofermento spoke about how Barbara was supposed to be in the class of 1964 and said, Instead of going to a graduation, we had to do this. Justice has been served. The DA's office has done a wonderful investigating job. All we can say is thanks. Their joy wasn't to last, as Lothringer was only sentenced to two to eight years at a hearing in July. Barbara's mother fainted when she heard the sentence, and Dominic stated, I expected him to get the full 15 years. This was discount justice. The district attorney's office told me that under the original 15-count indictment, this man could have got 99 years. He got 90% off. When Rose Lofermento recovered, she cried, a crime so vicious, how can he get off with so low a sentence, and he has been impeding justice the past two years? Lothringer would be eligible for parole after serving just 13 months because he had spent three months in jail before posting bail. He would remain on parole for the full eight years, and it was believed he would never be able to practice medicine again after his license was revoked in 1964. 
Lothringer spent four years in Sing Sing prison before he was released in 1968 and began to put his life back together. After failing to have his license reinstated once before, Lothringer was successful in becoming a certified doctor in 1973. He got married in 1974 and had a daughter. The following year, he became a certified psychiatrist. After his probationary period with the medical board ended in 1978, he became a staff psychiatrist at the Westchester County Jail and Medical Center. When asked about the decision to hire Lothringer, the county executive said, I remember there was a controversy. Apparently, we were told that whatever the problem was, it was in the past. Lothringer didn't want anything to do with his past, including Teresa, and after his release, he never contacted her again. During his time as a psychiatrist at the prison, Lothringer compiled reports on inmates and testified at criminal trials as an expert. After retiring from the county medical center in 1991, Lothringer didn't work in the prison again until he was hired by EMSA Correctional Care a firm that was contracted to provide health and mental health services to inmates in the Westchester Correctional System. He began working there in January 1996, and, just four months later, his name would be connected to the death of another teenage girl. Wendy and Larry Blumenthal adopted six-month-old Nancy from Nicaragua in 1979. The couple had successful careers and wanted to raise the little girl as their own. Wendy was the Director of Health Education and Promotion at the Greenwich Department of Health, and she was more than capable of looking after Nancy, who, it would later emerge, had complex needs. Nancy was described as a wonderful child who loved music, playing guitar, and horse riding. She had dreams of being a cosmetologist, but... She had difficulties at school in Redford, where she was raised. Nancy had learning disabilities, and she struggled to adjust to change. When her mood was affected in the fourth grade, her parents decided to enlist the help of a psychiatrist. Nancy was diagnosed with depression and began to exhibit suicidal ideology. She attempted to take her own life for the first time at just 12 years old and her depression worsened until she was prescribed the medication Zoloft when she was 15 years old. Her mother, Wendy, recalled, She said it evened out the depths of her feelings, and she didn't feel like a cloud of anger was around her anymore. The drug was effective in eliminating the deep depression she could fall into, and making her more able to go to school, more able to be an active member of the family, and just alleviating some of the deep depression she had prior to going on the drug. Nancy had been in a relationship with her boyfriend, Louis Russo, since she was 13 years old. But by the age of 17, it was clear that the relationship wasn't the best for either of them. Nancy was accused of helping Louis commit theft by luring people to a place where they would be beaten and robbed. Her parents had paid the $7,500 bail, but Nancy wanted Louis to be freed too. She had asked her mother to pay his $10,000 bail, but when her mom refused, Nancy threatened her with a knife. Wendy had no choice but to call the police. On April 17, 1996, Nancy was taken to Westchester Jail in Valhalla after her bail was revoked. 
The following day, Nancy was visited at her cell by the jail psychiatrist, 77-year-old Dr. Harvey Lothringer. He spent 20 minutes speaking to Nancy before deciding that she was, quote, a rather manipulative girl who acted suicidal to get what she wanted. Dr. Lothringer stopped Nancy's medication without consulting with her parents or her therapist. When Wendy Blumenthal heard that her daughter was no longer being treated, she immediately began contacting jail officials to try to have the prescription reinstated. Nancy's mood was declining rapidly, and when she was told at a hearing on May 10th that the DA wanted to offer her a plea deal for two to four years in prison for the charges, she expressed suicidal thoughts. Nancy was not placed on suicide watch, nor was she given the antidepressant she had been prescribed. Wendy continued to push for better mental health care for her daughter, and after Nancy called her in a state of distress on May 17th, she called the jail and told them she was afraid. A sergeant assured her that an aide would be assigned to watch Nancy. No one was sent to the cell until 11 p.m., five hours after Wendy had spoken to Nancy. At this point, Nancy was found hanging in her cell, having taken her own life. A note she left read, Dear Mom, Dad, Louie, please forgive me for what I've done, but this is the only way out. I love the three of you. Remember me, Nancy. A 78-page report on Nancy's care and death was prepared by the County Health Commissioner Mark Rappaport. The report stated that Lothringer's decision to take Nancy off the antidepressant she had been taking for two years was, quote, made in a vacuum devoid of important information about her mental health history. The commissioner explained that the suicide occurred after questionable medical decisions, poor communication between jail and mental health staff, and a failure to follow the correct procedure. Nancy's family attorney, Jonathan Lovett, believed the report was sanitized, and the family intended to sue the county and EMSA to ensure it never happened again. Lovett said, they were put on expressed, unequivocal, unambiguous notice repeatedly to what the problem was and what the remedy was, and they were repeatedly ignored. Wendy Blumenthal stated, We believed in the justice system, and they failed our daughter. Nothing is going to bring my daughter back. Nancy believed in making things right, and we're going to change the system and make it right. Nancy's mom criticized the decision to hire Lothringer after he had been convicted in relation to Barbara's death and dismemberment and said, You have to question the logic of hiring someone who could do something so brutal to another child. The county and the EMSA eventually settled for over $700,000 each in the wrongful death suit. Dr. Lothringer was not allowed to see patients again. Harvey Lothringer died in 2006, shortly after attending his daughter's graduation from medical school. She has followed in his footsteps with her decision to practice psychiatry, but hopefully, she will have a much more positive impact on her patients. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction 
by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening, and please be safe.